Good morning. Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 32. I'll be reading verses 1 to 23. 2 Chronicles 32, verses 1 to 23. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. Now when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he had intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it and built another outside wall and strengthened the millow in the city of David and made weapons and shields in great number. He appointed military officers over the people and gathered them to him in the square at the city gate and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles." And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem while he was besieging Lachish with all his forces against him, against king Hezekiah of Judah and against all Judah who were at Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you are remaining in Jerusalem under siege? Is not Hezekiah misleading you to give yourselves over to die by hunger and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and said to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before one altar, and on it you shall burn incense? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the lands? Were the gods of the nations of the lands able to at all deliver their land from my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations, which my fathers utterly destroyed, who could deliver his people out of my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this, and do not believe him. For no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? His servants spoke further against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to insult the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the lands of the nations of the lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. They called this out, and with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall, to frighten and terrify them so that they might take the city. They spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. But Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer, 
in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and choice presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. We'll continue with our catechism responsive reading. Uh, we're going through Keech's Baptist Catechism. Again, this is a resource that you can find online. It's free. Great resource for discipling kids. Uh, great way to memorize doctrine and learn doctrine. We'll be looking at questions 57 and 58 today. I'll read the questions and we'll read the answers together. Uh, last week we started looking at uh, the second commandment. Uh, this week we continue looking at the second commandment. Question number 57. What is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in His Word. Question number 58. What are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, His propriety in us, and the zeal He has for His own worship. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank You once again for this day. We thank You once again for giving us a place to gather, and we thank You for giving us a church family to gather with in worship of You. We thank You so much for this privilege and pray, O oh Lord, that we would strengthen each other, that iron would sharpen iron in our midst, and that Christ would be glorified in our fellowship. Father, we come to you today realizing what is happening in the world. We realize that there is the first underground church in the history of North America meeting today. And Lord, our hearts are so tempted to fear, and yet we remember what you are capable of doing. That you would even take down Sennacherib, the king of Assyria the mighty king, who can stand against you? Who can thwart your will? Lord, your word assures us that none can. We trust in your word. We trust in your promises. And so we trust in your sovereignty over the situation with governments imposing lockdowns on churches, preventing churches from meeting and forcing churches to gather illegally in order to be obedient unto you. We pray specifically for Grace Life Church in Alberta, Canada, and for Pastor James Coates and his elders. We pray for boldness for them. We pray for them to have courage and wisdom. We pray, O oh Lord, that Christ above all would be exalted in their private underground worship, but we pray also that their devotion unto you would be a testimony of your great worth, of the fact that you are worth everything. And that there is no cost too great when it comes to worshiping you and obeying you. We pray for the church, the church's safety. We pray for their well-being. We pray for their joy. 
We pray for many to be saved through their ministry. Oh Lord, we ask that You would add oil to their lamp, that the Gospel would shine ever brighter as the persecution increases in their country. And we pray the same for our country, Lord. As governors are talking about the possibility of more lockdowns, we pray for the church in our land. We pray for the Gospel to go forth. We pray for pastors and elders to be bold and to be obedient to You instead of to men. We pray, O Lord, that You would give us relief from these difficult circumstances, these difficult times. We pray that You would strengthen Your church. We pray that You would grow Your church. We pray that You would build Your church. And we know, O Lord, that You will. Because You have said that You will. And there is nothing that any governor, there's nothing that any president, there's nothing that any Supreme Court justice can do to prevent you from building your church. Oh Lord, be glorified in that. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of Christ in our country. We also pray, oh Lord, for our leaders. We pray that the testimony of Christians who are willing to meet despite risks, despite consequences, would speak loudly to them. We pray, O Lord, that they would incline their ears and hear the Gospel and that You would grant them repentance and faith to believe in Christ. Not only in order that Christ would be exalted, although that is, of course, first and foremost, but also, Lord, for the benefit of Your people, for the safety and well-being of Your people, that we may be encouraged by the testimony of sinners who are turned to Christ by Your grace. And now, O Lord, as we come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word. And we remember that Your Word is sufficient. We remember that Your Word is inerrant, inspired, infallible. That it will never fail. That it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And O Lord, our prayer is that You would apply Your Word to us in these ways today. You know, O Lord, what our needs are. You know what it would take to grow us in Christ's likeness. You know what we need to hear from Your Word. And so, as we come to Your Word, we come as hungry servants, beggars, who are asking to be fed at Your table. And we pray, O Lord, that You would use Your Word to nourish us, to strengthen us, and to grow us all for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be starting John chapter 12 today after, I think, about three months in John chapter 11. I don't think we'll be in John chapter 12 quite that long. Uh, But this is a fantastic chapter and this opening passage is uh, just amazing. I, I was able to see it this week with fresh eyes, and I, I've caught things that I've never caught before, which is just the wonder of God's Word. Uh, you can read something 500 times, and the 501st time, you can still be finding things that you've never seen before. But we'll be looking at John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11 today. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. The marketing world 
has always sought to get the customer as fully invested into a product as they possibly can. And in today's world, the goal, according to one article that I read on the subject this week, is what they called cult-like devotion. One ad executive in this uh, article said this. He said uh, that he asked himself, quote, what makes people exhibit cult-like devotion? And the article goes on to say, he thus undertook a study of cults precisely in order to figure out how brands could induce loyalty beyond reason, end quote. The article goes on to note that, quote, people join brands for the same reasons they join cults and religions, to belong and to make meaning. They ceased being merely customers and now identified themselves as disciples, as, quote unquote, members of the tribe, whether that tribe be Saturn or VW owners, Starbucks drinkers or Mac users, end quote. What an interesting approach to marketing in a society that, who can deny, is so very tribal right now, so marked by, by tribalism. The people who are responsible for persuading us and convincing us to buy something are actually using that tribalism to entice people, to follow after people they resemble, or at least think they resemble, and with whom they can identify. The idea that they're trying to use to sell their products is that if you don't have this product, or if you don't have that product, you don't belong, and you're insignificant. The truth of the matter is that everybody, everybody in here, everybody out there, everybody everywhere is devoted to something or someone. Everyone. Spouses are supposed to be devoted to one another, and that's a good thing. Professional athletes are devoted to their sports, and the best athletes are, are just incredibly devoted to studying even their position. That's, that's how they got to where they are. People are devoted to movie franchises. They even sometimes have names that identify them as such, like Trekkies. Everyone is devoted to something. The question is, to what or to whom do you give your highest devotion? To what or to whom do you give your highest devotion? More importantly than the lower things that you're devoted to, what is your highest devotion? And this is really the issue that the first commandment addresses, isn't it? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Not only does that require that God be the object of our highest devotion, but it implies that our devotion to Him must be uncontested. Our devotion to Him must be unparalleled by any other devotion that we might have. The word before, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, the word before doesn't mean before in a sequential sense. It's not like God saying, you know, it's okay for you to have other gods as long as I'm at the top of the list. That's not what God is saying. No, the word before means in the presence of God and God alone. God alone deserves our highest and deepest and richest and fullest devotion. But we should understand that man's nature gets in the way. Man's disposition by nature is for us to put ourselves at the top of that list of things that we're devoted to. 
This is why we have cultural slogans like, just follow your heart, or you do you, or you've got to love yourself first. Have you guys heard all those slogans? Has anybody never heard those slogans? They're everywhere. And these are all just self-centered, self-exalting slogans. And that's because that's what we're inclined by nature to do. That's what appeals to us by nature. That's all that fallen man can do. That's all that fallen man will do. And that helps us to understand exactly why it is that Scripture specifically and explicitly tells us things like, none seeks God. All have turned aside. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Why? Because man puts himself at the top of the things that he's devoted to. Everyone is supremely devoted to something or someone. If your highest devotion is unto God, we should know that it will be a costly devotion. The Gospel invitation is for us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and to follow Jesus. It is impossible for man by nature to deny himself because man is his highest priority by nature. So right there, the first step, deny yourselves, take up your crosses, and follow Jesus. The first step, fallen man will say, I'm out. It's costly to follow Jesus because it involves denying yourself. Jesus even tells us that it's costly, and he encouraged his followers to count the cost of following him. So today we begin our study of the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. It's actually the beginning of the second half of the book. Uh, And it it takes a totally different direction uh, than what we saw in the first half of the book. In the first half, Jesus had a a very public ministry. He went to the feasts. He went to the festivals and everything. He had a very public ministry. And we saw that he performed seven miracles that John recorded, seven significant miracles, maybe we should say, as he went from place to place preaching the gospel. And often, as he did, he would verbally clash with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees. But the Pharisees have now, we saw at the end of chapter 11, they've now hatched a plot to kill Jesus, to murder him at the Passover festival. And thus, chapter 11 ended by telling us that Jesus withdrew to a more remote region with his disciples. And so now, as we get to chapter 12, starting in chapter 12, Jesus will remain withdrawn from the Jews and the religious leaders. He's no longer ministering publicly. He's no longer ministering among them. Instead, what, he, what we're going to see him doing is spending more time alone with his disciples and his followers. And that's it from here on out. These are the people, these, these disciples and followers, these are the ones who are rightly devoted These are the ones whose highest devotion is Christ. But of course, there's one exception, as we'll see in our passage today. And of course, that exception is a man by the name of Judas Iscariot, who is devoted, but he's devoted first and foremost to himself. And he expresses that devotion by serving money instead of serving God. And so the events that transpire starting in chapter 12 all, all take place during the final week of Jesus' ministry. This last week is what leads up to the Passover. 
So what we'll see from this point forward is that Jesus' followers are becoming increasingly devoted to Him while His enemies have become increasingly devoted to themselves and to His demise. The hearts and the wills of His followers will continue to soften while the hearts of His enemies will continue to harden. And that's going to be clearly illustrated in our passage today. This half of John's Gospel will be where John starts to refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This will also be the half where Judas Iscariot becomes a more primary adversary of Christ. But the point of this passage that we're going to be looking at today is that devotion to Christ is costly and courageous It's perhaps perhaps even risky, but the cost of not being devoted to following Christ, the cost of being devoted to oneself, is even greater. Proper devotion to Christ has a rich and eternal reward, uh, eternal life in Christ, whereas supreme devotion to anything else outside of Christ has a terrible consequence, and that is eternal destruction. How fitting, when you consider the theme of chapter 11 and the theme of chapter 12, how fitting that we would immediately go from seeing Christ's sovereign power over life and death to a passage on devotion. From a passage that illustrates salvation to a passage that illustrates the proper effect of salvation. But the scene is set really by the first two verses of the chapter. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So again, this is the final week of Christ's ministry. The week that we'll see him at the end betrayed, tried before Pontius Pilate, and sent to be crucified and die. We should once again make note of the word therefore, which is uh, one of the first words of the text here. It reveals a cause and effect, right? There's a cause and effect in the text. If we look back at how chapter 11 ended with the plot to murder Jesus, then we understand that this plot to murder Jesus is the very reason that Jesus has come to Bethany. He came because, just as the high priest Caiaphas had prophesied, it was better that one man die than that a whole nation should perish. Jesus has therefore come to Bethany, which is very, very close to Jerusalem, which is where the events at the Passover will take place. He has come to do the Father's will. He has come to die was ministry redeem his people. The end of chapter 11, we saw that he, he was ministering to his disciples in the region of Ephraim, but now we've essentially hit a, a fast-forward button in the text, and we've moved to the final week before Christ's death. We don't know how long he spent in Ephraim ministering to the disciples, but there was some time there. But now we're moving to the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. John reminds us that this is the place. This place in Bethany is the place where Lazarus, whom Jesus has raised from the dead, this is where Lazarus lived. 
Not that we would have forgotten. It was less than a chapter ago that that event was recorded. But John wants us to see what has become of Lazarus since his resurrection. And Lazarus has drawn close to Jesus. So you had a picture of salvation. And the next time you see him, he is reclining with Jesus. There's something there for us. He's reclining at the table of Jesus. We should see that even though Jesus knows of this plot against his own life, he doesn't withdraw from allowing his disciples to draw near to him. His followers want to thank him and to celebrate the resurrection of Lazarus. And Jesus doesn't turn them away in order to concentrate or focus on the events that are going to transpire at the end of the week. No, he he knows what he's about to face. And yet, he makes himself entirely available to his disciples. And it's interesting to note, not only what John does tell us about what's taking place here, but also what he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us, as Matthew and Mark do, that the host of this dinner is a man known as Simon the leper. Simon the leper. It's entirely possible that he's a man that Jesus healed, but the name stuck as a, as a monument of what Jesus had done for him. Uh, it's also entirely possible that he was either uh, Mary or Martha's husband, or, or maybe he was just a friend of the family. Either way, the fact that Martha is the one serving dinner in Simon the leper's house indicates that there's some kind of close connection there between them, although we don't know exactly what it is. But what's beautiful as we consider what we see here in the first two verses is that earlier we saw Jesus weeping with those who wept, grieving with those who were grieving, and now what a beautiful thing to see that He is rejoicing with those who rejoice, just as Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 12. So Martha is serving dinner. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Where's Mary? We're about to see Mary. Her actions are actually central to this passage. Let's continue by looking at verse 3 together. Verse 3 tells us what Mary was doing. It says, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This is beautiful, incredible picture of true devotion unto Christ. In fact, the banquet is an amazing illustration of the way that Christ's people serve Him with different forms of ministry. Martha's doing one thing, Lazarus is doing another, Mary's doing another. Martha's the the host, Uh, Lazarus is a a living testimony, a, a powerful image of Christ's sovereign power over life and death. And Mary now enters the scene and expresses her devotion to Christ by breaking open a very, very expensive bottle of perfume and anointing Him, washing His feet with it. Mary's devotion to Christ is a picture of true Christian devotion. It's a picture of the cost of devotion. It's a picture of the courage of devotion. 
So great is her example. Actually, Matthew and Mark also included in their narratives, making her actions here one of only a very small handful of events that are found in Matthew, Mark, and in John. But what we should first see is that her devotion to Christ isn't cheap. It's costly. This isn't cheap faith. This is costly. True devotion to Christ always is. It always is. John tells us that she had a pound of this very costly perfume made of pure nard. Now, I'm just going to take a wild guess here, and I'm going to guess that most of you don't know what nard is. That, or I'm just completely ignorant. I had to look it up. Um, It's defined as, uh, quote, the head or spike of a fragrant East Indian plant belonging to the genus Valeriana, which produces a juice of delicious odor, which the ancients used, either pure or mixed, in the preparation of a most precious ointment. So, Part of the reason that it's so expensive, apparently, is because the plant from which nard is drawn isn't found in the Mediterranean or even in the Middle Eastern regions. No, it comes from thousands of miles away in East India. This was a rare perfume. And it was a perfume that was of the highest quality. As we'll see in a moment, Judas is going to claim that it had a value a value of 300 denarii. Now, how much is that worth? How much is, is 300 denarii worth? Well, how much is one denarii worth? A denarii was the wage for one day of work. So 300 denarii would be the equivalent of roughly one year of work, one year of hard labor. Now let me translate that into a more tangible amount for you. The average Household income in Linwood is about $75,000 a year. Imagine finding a perfume that costs $75,000 and buying it. Spending every dime you worked an entire year for on that one thing. It, It translates into tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in our culture today. So what does she do with it? What does Mary do with it? She gives it all to Jesus. She lets her hair down and she uses her hair to clean Jesus' feet with this fine, costly perfume. Now many, as they've considered the value of this this perfume and what's taking place here, many have surmised that uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus had a lot of money, that they were exceptionally wealthy people. And that's possible, Uh, after all, I mean, when you think about how many people came from Jerusalem to Bethany to grieve with uh, Mary and Martha when Lazarus had died, that does perhaps suggest that they were a wealthy and influential family, although we can't know for sure. Uh, If they were wealthy, what an amazing example they are of faithful stewardship, of serving God instead of serving money. Because we all know, right, that you can't serve God and money. We know that, right? What did Jesus say about that? He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's what he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. And this is a really important reality for us to grasp. Let me just encourage you this far. 
don't learn this one the hard way. Don't learn this one the hard way. One of the dangers of having a lot of money, one of the dangers of having influence and wealth is that the more a person has, the more inclined they are to base their identity, who they they see themselves as being on what they have, and the more inclined they are, therefore, to be stingy with it, to be tight with it. There are many, many studies out there that have been done which show that actually statistically, poor people are far, far more generous with their money and resources than wealthy people are. So the less a person has of it, the more loosely they hold it, whereas the more one has of it, the more tightly they tend to hold it. So the challenge for us as Christians is to steward everything that we have, whatever wealth we have, whatever possessions we have, whatever influence we have, to steward these things wisely and generously. And that's going to require finding a very difficult balance to find and maintain. But it wasn't for Mary. Mary was all in. Her devotion was costly. And she was perfectly fine with that. Now, if their family wasn't wealthy, um, maybe she inherited it. Maybe somebody gave it to her as a gift for something. We don't know. But So if the family wasn't wealthy, Mary's actions still speak so loudly to us, don't they? Perhaps even more loudly. Whether she was wealthy or not, she was offering unto Christ the very best that she had. And she delighted to express her devotion to Him in a costly, costly manner. Mary's actions should force us to look at ourselves and to ask ourselves, is there anything that I would hold back from giving to Jesus? If the answer is yes, it may be wise to consider whether or not that thing, whatever it is, may be an idol. Think about it in light of the first commandment. And if it is an idol, we must place that thing in check and keep it there, or we must remove ourselves from it. Because only Christ, only Christ is worthy of our highest devotion. He's our greatest treasure, is He not? He must be. He must be. He's worth nothing less He's worthy of nothing less than our very highest devotion. That's why Jesus told the rich young ruler, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It wasn't that Jesus was saying that everybody who follows him needs to get rid of all their earthly possessions and treasure. That's not what he was saying. This instruction wasn't given to all of the disciples. It was only given to one man. It was only given to the rich young ruler. The question is, why was it given only to this one man? And the answer is, because his stuff was his highest devotion. Those things were more important to him than Christ was. And therefore, his stuff presented an obstacle to him following Jesus faithfully. So what is Jesus worth to you? What is He worth to you? What cost for you would be too much? I can't answer that for you. Only you can answer it. What cost would be too much for you?
Is there anything, whether that would be earthly treasure, you know, so things in a financial sense or maybe in any other sense like social standing, is there anything that would hold you back from being primarily, first and foremost, devoted to Jesus? If so, you must examine your priorities. You must consider your heart the things that you're devoted to, and consider the fact that true devotion to Christ costs something. It's not cheap. Easy believism is a lie. For many throughout history, it cost them everything, including their lives. Do we have that kind of devotion to Christ that we'd be willing to give our lives up for Him? Mary's devotion is not only costly, but it's also courageous. And we'll realize that when we consider that the Pharisees at the end of chapter 11 had put out word that if anyone knows where Jesus is, they were to report his whereabouts to the religious authorities immediately so that they could come and spring their plot to assassinate him. What do you think would happen to somebody who didn't comply? they'd probably be accused of being an accessory to the crimes that the religious leaders would accuse Jesus of. And that person would very likely suffer the same fate that Jesus would. This is why Simon Peter, at the end of the week, toward the end of the week, when he was accused of being an accomplice of Jesus, he absolutely melted As Peter stood in the distance when Jesus was arrested, Luke tells us, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the fire uh, firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. And three times she accuses him. And three times Peter completely denies it. Whereas earlier he said, earlier in that very night he had said, I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. Was he really? No. Not yet. He wasn't ready yet to die for his faith in Christ. At least not at this point. But tradition does tell us that the day would come when Peter would be arrested for preaching the Gospel and refusing to be silent and that he would insist on being crucified upside down because he was unworthy of being crucified in the same manner that his Master was. Mary's devotion is both costly and courageous. It wasn't just costly in a financial sense. It very well could have put her life in danger. It was dangerous and risky to come and be in the presence of Jesus without going and reporting to the authorities where he was. And if it was dangerous for her, how much more dangerous was it for Lazarus? As we'll see in in just a little bit, the religious leaders have decided that the testimony of a man who's been resurrected was too much of a threat to them, and thus they decide to murder him as well as a means of eliminating the evidence of Jesus' incredible miracle that testified to the fact that Jesus was God incarnate was and is God incarnate. To be in the presence of Jesus, this is what we have to understand, to be in His presence, to be in this house on that night was to risk almost certain death. What a terrible thing that says about those who won't come to church because there's a virus that is more than 99.5% survivable. I'm not saying that there aren't 
some who should take precautions. Of course there are. But that doesn't justify the vast, vast majority of Christians staying home instead of obeying the Lord and gathering to worship Him corporately. Just a couple months ago, Pastor James Coates, the pastor of Grace Life Church in Alberta, Canada, he was thrown into a maximum security prison because he continued to gather his church to worship the Lord on Sundays. He and his congregation had met every week uh, since, past, since last June, and they hadn't had one case of COVID-19. People who had felt sick stayed home as they should, while the rest of the church continued to gather. Well, this past week, this last Sunday, the authorities in Alberta, Canada, did what they could to shut their church down completely. They put three fences around the church to keep people out. And so you know what the congregation of Grace Life Church did? They met in an undisclosed location anyway, thereby becoming the first underground church in North American history. This last week, the first one recorded ever. Not far away. Not far away geographically, and let's be honest, not that far away ideologically or politically. If you want to draw some serious heat on social media, go on there and voice support for Grace Life Church. Here's what you'll get. You'll get, they're a danger to their community. Really, they met for how many months with no cases of COVID-19? They're a danger to their community. They should stay home if it'll save even one life. Let me ask you this. What's the point of saving physical lives if doing so means that many will lose their souls? And that's exactly what will happen to those who don't believe because they don't hear the gospel preached. After all, faith comes by hearing. What if there's nobody to hear because they all stayed home? People perish and souls are lost forever. What's the point of saving physical lives if it costs spiritual souls? If they love their neighbors, they just stay home. What a ridiculous thing to say. That is a ridiculous thing to say. That argument boils down to an attempt to uphold the second table of the Ten Commandments by neglecting the first table of the Ten Commandments. The first table of the Ten Commandments deals with what? Deals with how we relate to God, how we identify or how, how we worship God. It, it deals with loving God rightly. And loving God rightly involves worshiping Him corporately in the presence of fellow believers. And loving God, upholding the first table of the law, is the first step in upholding the second table of the law. You can't uphold the second table of the law without upholding the first. To love our neighbors means to desire their greatest good. That's what it means to love, period. To love our neighbors, that's what it means. And physical safety, friends, I hate to say it. Actually, I'm not even afraid to say it. Physical safety is not the greatest good. It's just not. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus illustrate that for us, don't they? They're putting their own safety and well-being on the line for Jesus. To love Him, to serve Him, to worship Him. Do you have the courage to gather 
and worship, even if doing so could land you in prison. We may be forced to find out before too long. True devotion to Christ, friends, is costly. And true devotion to Christ is courageous. Consider also how humble Mary's devotion is as she stoops to clean the feet of Jesus. Jesus was fully man. His feet were just like everybody else's. They weren't immaculately clean. (laughs) To clean a person's feet in that time was as revolting as you might imagine. This wasn't a culture in which people bathed every day with soap. It wasn't a culture in which people would go out and get pedicures and keep their feet nice and clean. They, they didn't even have shoes that enclosed their feet like what we have. No, their feet would be absolutely disgusting. And so to clean another person's feet would have been absolutely revolting. In fact, it was so revolting that by law it was forbidden that masters require their servants or slaves to wash their feet. That was actually illegal because it was so revolting. It was below even the lowest low that anybody was expected to go. And yet, Mary washes her master's feet with this expensive perfume. How better to show the depths of her love to the one who raised her brother back to life from the dead. How better to show the depths of her love to the one who first loved her. To clean Jesus' feet wasn't beneath her. So great is Jesus, and so deep her devotion to Jesus, it was above her. Just as it was above John the Baptist, who rightly said of Jesus earlier in, in John's Gospel, it is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. It's not that untying his sandal was below him, it's that it was above him. And the same goes for Mary. But John doesn't only want us to see the devotion of Jesus' followers, as beautiful as the devotion of his followers is. John also wants us to see the devotion of Christ's enemies. Everyone is devoted to something. Everyone. And his enemies are no exception. So let's continue looking at verses 4 to 8. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And, he, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. We need to understand this. We need to understand that devotion to Christ will always, throughout history it has, it was here, and it will be in our day, true devotion to Christ will always be challenged by his enemies. 
And that statement should become like a rock in the shoe of every self-professing Christian who thinks that Christians who don't have comorbidity factors should just stay home from church where they can express their devotion. Church being the one place where they can express their devotion to God through Christ in corporate worship as Scripture instructs. True devotion to Christ will always be challenged by His enemies. Verse 4 starts with the word, but which once again is a word that indicates a contrast that John specifically wants us to see. The devotion of Mary is being contrasted here with the devotion of Judas Iscariot, who in seeing Mary pour out this bottle of expensive perfume, says this, he says, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now I want you to think very closely about his argument here. Because his argument really boils down to this. He's saying that it would be better for us to love our neighbors than to worship and express devotion unto God. That is exactly what he's saying there. He's saying that it's more important to love our neighbors than it is to serve and worship the Lord. And this is the same thing the same line of reasoning that people like our own governor, Jay Inslee, were saying when when he said that churches are not essential. I imagine that he doesn't even realize whose footsteps he's following in here, but I also imagine that he doesn't care. But we have to. We have to care. Even about him, we have to care. John wants us to see that this isn't even really why Judas Iscariot wanted to sell the perfume though. It was so that Judas could steal some of the money for himself. Meaning the argument that the perfume should be sold to help the poor was really a virtue signal. It was just a virtue signal. It's just a smoke screen. He had something else in mind, but he wanted to look really good doing it. It's a virtue signal. Dictionary.com defines virtue signaling as such. It's, quote, the sharing of one's point of view on a social or political issue, often on social media, in order to garner praise or acknowledgement of one's righteousness from others who share that point of view or to passively rebuke those who do not. There is nothing virtuous about virtue signaling. What he's trying to do is look more righteous than those who are supremely devoted to Christ. What he's really doing is trying to look more righteous than even Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come up with this idea. So it's kind of a rebuke to Jesus from Judas. Because Judas sure sounds righteous as he says that, doesn't he? He sure seems like he's trying to love his neighbor but it's all an act. It's all smokescreen. The truth is that he wants the perfume to be sold so that Judas Iscariot can serve Judas Iscariot. He wants the perfume to be sold because Judas is devoted first and foremost to Judas. How ironic and sad that so many who claim to be Christian and claim that they simply want to love their neighbors by closing churches down, are so quick to criticize Christians who insist on keeping church doors open and gathering despite a virus that's more than 99.5% survivable. It's ironic and, and tragic because, well, 
Judas Iscariot claimed to be a follower of Jesus too. But Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, Judas proves how persuasively a hypocrite can play the role of a disciple. End quote. Knowing Jesus' motives here, Judas is challenging him openly in front of everybody. And Jesus also knows Judas's motives. And Jesus insists that Mary continue, noting that the poor will always be physically present, but that he, that Jesus, wouldn't be. The point that Jesus is making here is a very important one. Don't miss this. His point was that our desire to remedy social ills, that our desire to help the world and those around us should never be greater than our desire to worship and serve the Lord. Our desire to to remedy the problems of the world, our, our concern for the issues that the world faces, whether we're talking about economic concerns or concerns about physical health and physical safety, should never, ever, ever be greater than our desire to worship the Lord and obey Him and serve Him. It all comes down to this. What is your highest priority? What is your highest priority? To what are you supremely devoted? Because you are supremely devoted to something or someone. True devotion to Christ is costly. True devotion to Christ is courageous. Judas Iscariot has neither of those qualities. Do you? What's Christ worth to you? What expense would you hold back toward Him? Are you willing to even risk your own life to have Him and to be in His presence? Are you willing to risk your social status? Are you willing to risk going to prison for your devotion and obedience to Christ? Are you willing to deny yourself in order to have Him? This is the type of devotion, a devotion that's both costly and courageous. This is the kind of devotion that has an interesting effect on people around. It makes them very, very curious. And I suppose it should. But in the case of Lazarus, his devotion to Christ drew the curiosity of many, which put him in imminent danger. Let's continue looking at verses 9 to 11. John writes, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. One of the interesting things to note about Lazarus is we never see him say anything. He's never quoted as saying anything. And yet, his testimony really wasn't about what he did or anything for Jesus, but it was what Jesus did for him. And the same is true for every one of us if we are devoted to Christ as we should be. Think of it this way. How curious were people last year when despite the COVID-19 pandemic and despite the lockdowns, We gathered for worship nevertheless. 
We even had the local news show up when we met in the parking lot. You remember that? Do you remember how many people were driving by and stopped to see what we were doing? They were curious. Do you remember the people who were riding their bikes by and they stopped to see and to listen? Why were they doing that? We should have been sheltering at home. And so they're curious. What are these people doing? Curiosity has a way of drawing people. And so we're told that many were coming to see Lazarus. It doesn't say that all believed in Jesus as a result of what Jesus did for Lazarus, but the fact that Lazarus had this testimony that drew them to see him was a threat to the religious authorities. We are told that many believed in Christ as a result of Lazarus' testimony. But many were coming to see Lazarus really for the same reason that people go to see a magician. It's because it's something they can't explain. It's something that mystifies them. And the response of the chief priests is to determine that Lazarus is such a threat and such a problem to them, they need to eliminate him in addition to eliminating Jesus. So really, it was all about a power grab for them. It had nothing to do with truth. They had the same hearts and the same kind of devotion that Judas Iscariot had. Like him, they they weren't concerned with truth. And they weren't concerned with worshiping or obeying God. Just as Judas' highest devotion was unto himself, the highest devotion of these chief priests was unto themselves. They would rather murder Jesus, the only innocent man who ever lived, the God-man. They would rather murder him than submit to him and believe in him. Judas Iscariot gives us a close-up look at their hearts. Their hearts being unregenerate and and no different from the, uh, the hearts of unbelievers even today. In the end, what we see is, of course, that Judas is one of them. He's conspiring for Jesus' murder too. But when you consider that Judas followed Jesus for three years and heard Jesus preach the gospel regularly and saw Jesus perform one miracle after another, after another, after another, and he, he walked and sat and ate in Jesus' presence, and he experienced Jesus' kindness unto him, his gracefulness unto him, and yet his heart remained unconvinced and unconverted. When we consider this, when you take all of these things into account, one thing is very clear, and that is for a person to have saving faith in Christ, God must do a work in that person. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Apart from God's grace, you and I would be no different from Judas and no different from these religious leaders who are conspiring to murder now two men, not just one. Now, sin never stops where you think it's going to stop. It's always going to take you further, as it does here. They're not just going to kill Jesus. They're also going to kill Lazarus. If we see that the only difference between us And them is not something about us, but that it's the grace of God. How then can we not share in the devotion of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all who gathered to be in the presence of Christ, who were rightly and properly devoted to Christ?
despite the cost and despite the potential consequences. True devotion to Christ is costly, and it's often even dangerous. But the cost of not being devoted to Christ, the cost of being devoted to oneself, is so much greater. Proper devotion to Christ has a rich reward, eternal life, whereas supreme devotion to anything other than Christ has a terrible consequence, eternal destruction. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, I love you as my neighbor enough to warn you of the cost of not believing in Jesus. And for those who have believed, and believed savingly, for those who are devoted rightly, we must love our neighbors in such a way that they can see our devotion to Christ. We must love them enough to speak truth to them. We must even love them enough to risk offending them in a culture where offending people is the greatest possible crime. True devotion to Christ is costly. It might cost you financially. It might cost you socially. It might cost you friendships. But true devotion to Christ is by nature costly and courageous. But that kind of of humble, selfless devotion speaks volumes, speaks volumes to the unbelieving world around us. We're here to be a light in the darkness. And that requires this kind of devotion. So may God grant us that kind of faith, that kind of devotion, that we would do whatever we have to do to obey God and to serve Him. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the way that it confronts us, for the way that it convicts us, for the model that it sets for us. And thank You, O Lord, for the way that it makes us more like Jesus. We pray, O Lord, that Your Word would accomplish Your work in us. We pray, O Lord, for the kind of devotion that we see in this passage, a costly devotion, a courageous devotion, a humble devotion. Because when that devotion is challenged, when it's contested, O Lord, that's the type of devotion that will stand. And we pray that by your grace, you would grant us that type of devotion. Work in us, O Lord. Work in us as your, your word permeates our hearts and minds. Work in us to create this kind of devotion that Christ would be exalted in our lives. And that the world would see that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.